Thanks to our sponsor, Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local D.C. area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who have more questions than answers, like us at DC by Foot. We're really excited to partner with them next month to learn all about personal liability as a tour guide in Washington, DC. Visit their website at malloy-law.com or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. Welcome back. We are coming back to you. It's still January. It's still cold. uh, And we're happy to be in your ear holes again. Uh, We are, as always, your friendly neighborhood, semi-neighborhood local tour guides from the D.C. area. We talk about scandals. We talk about politics. We talk about local, national, and sometimes even international incidents. uh, And we do it with aplomb uh, and grace and humor. And we are back with another installment. It is 2024, which is crazy. And uh, we're here to talk about some fun stuff. But before we get to that, as always, I am Rebecca. I'm Becca. And together we are Rebecca's. We're back, fam. Thanks for coming along on a journey with us. We want to shout out always our patrons, the best, the winds beneath our wings. Thank you for being our our favorites. You should get a patron-only episode every month. This one is a particularly juicy scandal. We enjoyed recording it and we giggled a lot, so it's good times. We are also in the midst of winter tours. And you might think to yourself, there's not a lot to tour in the winter because it's chilly. And it is. But we know all the warm spots. So, yes, come on a tour with us. We know all the fun and exciting places. We know how to keep you warm on a cold day. We're also building on our schedule for the spring and summer. So if your travel takes you to the nation's capital, come on a tour with us. We are very fun and exciting. Almost better in person than in on the pod. It's true. Today, we are going to talk about an assassination attempt Uh, And so I want to highlight our other assassination-related episodes, including several of our very earliest episodes. We had a fantastic, one of my favorite episodes of the pod, where we talk about the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan. Uh, We talk about President Garfield's assassination, and we've also talked about McKinley's assassination. We have not yet done JFK, uh, and we will not be doing uh, Abraham Lincoln, as we have an entire tour about the Lincoln assassination, which is much better because you get to see the places but they're there and yeah so that you should check those episodes out they're very fun and this is also we like to talk at the beginning of january about january 6th we like to talk about violence and the political process to sort of highlight that this has always been a problem that this has always been something that is close to the heart of american politics and that it is something that we need to remain cautious and really vigilant about something that affected us as guides watching what went down on january 6th at the capitol and so 
so we want to bring attention to that so that this doesn't become something that we just memory hold. This is a an ongoing part, and it's a really unfortunate and sort of dark section of our political life. And so that's why we're going to do the topic we're going to do. So very well said. I think it's worth noting, and I, I usually drop this in tours, especially with students, that one in every 10 American presidents has been killed by an assassin, and one in every four has faced an assassin or an assassination plot. And I don't want to be dismissive of that. You can like a president, dislike a president, you can feel however you feel about them. But when you hold that office, you are the center of people's attention and often ire and anger at the government, at the world, at society. And any president of the United States can become sort of a point of fixation and a target of political violence. And this has been true in our country from the beginning. No greater man than George Washington had threats against his life made, right? So if Washington can't do it, without someone threatening to kill him, it's pretty unlikely anyone else is going to be able to. And so this is a reality of being president of the United States. And I definitely, for myself, hope as we continue with the pod, we'll talk a little bit more about some of these attempts and what they say about what's happening in the country at that time. So this particular assassination attempt, which occurs in 1835, is going to be carried out against Andrew Jackson. And if you've listened to our podcast, we don't always have a lot of good things to say about Mr. Andrew Jackson. Who, us? (laughs) A complicated, (laughs) complex figure to discuss. Do I think anybody should be targeted by an assassin? Probably not. So this may be a weirdly sympathetic episode to Jackson. But um, if you haven't listened to the pod, I recommend we've got a couple good episodes on Jackson. The Petticoat Affair definitely is a good one that sort of touches on some of the political upheaval of Jackson's time. In the presidency, we've talked a little bit about his election. We've talked about some of the things that have gone down in Jackson's life. But when we get to 1835, he's 67 years old, which in this era is going to be rather old for a president. He's a second term president at this point. He had ridden this big populist wave to the White House initially, and he has a very successful reelection. So um, he's got a lot of voting support. But from a political perspective, he's in his second term. Jackson has got some political enemies. He is a divisive figure. He has made some choices as president that people don't love. So he's in his second term. But this is a guy who's now on the receiving end of quite a bit of loud criticism. Yeah, I think that's fair. Jackson remains, I think at this point, he's elderly. He's not in the best of health at this point. He never, in some ways, like Jackson never fully recovers from his wife's death right before he's sworn in as president. And so he's he's been president a while. And as happens to politicians, or particularly people who aren't politicians that become politicians and become president, Jackson discovers that it's one thing to talk about all the things that you're going to do as president. And it's another thing when you run into the warm embrace of Congress. Like that tends to slow people's role a little bit. And Jackson is no uh, different. Jackson has had, he's divisive and Congress is not really interested in going along with what he wants just because that's what he wants. He is very much opposed by Henry Clay. We did a whole pot about Henry Clay, the Whig party. They have nicknamed him King Andrew, 
there's like political cartoons. There's this one famous cartoon at the moment, uh, at that moment that he's in a king's robe with a crown and the whole thing. And the idea is that he's a little, like he's above his skis a little bit. Like he's too monarchical. He thinks that he has the right to do things that we don't allow a president in a democracy to do. And so he's really has had some significant butted heads with people in Congress. He is also, he's opposed to the Bank of the United States. And that's going to be part of the immediate backdrop to what's about to happen is that he has just vetoed the charter to reauthorize the second Bank of the United States. And so that's going to be part of the political background of this. Jackson opposes the bank, the Whigs are for it. And that's going to play into what's kind of going on here. He's now, I won't say unpopular, although in Congress he is, but he's also a lame duck too. Like he's, it's clear he's not going to run for another term at this point. He's got about a year or so left on his term, about two years left on his term. So he's lame duck at this point. You know, it's real different when you're the guy that everybody wants to ride your coattails, right? A lot of people will run for Congress in the immediate aftermath of Jackson, riding along as these sort of Jacksonian Democrats with these similar populist messages. But once they get into Congress, they don't feel like they need him. And again, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the lame duck. There is at this time, of course, no constitutional restriction to pursuing beyond a second term. But because of his health, because of his difficulties with Congress, truly with his age and kind of malaise at this point, he seems relatively unhappy being president because he can't just wave a magic wand and do whatever he wants. It's unlikely he's going to run for a third term. So now all those little coattail people are not so eager to um, boost you up. And so he's having a tougher go at this point of his presidency than he had early on, you know, when you're the buck that's come in and ridden the election wave. So I think that all paints a really good picture of what's going on. I want to turn our attention to a man named Richard Lawrence. Lawrence was born in England. His family immigrated to the United States right around 1812. So just about the time that we're fighting the British a second time, Lawrence's family comes to the U.S. and they settle in the Northern Virginia area. By all accounts, he is a very nice young man as a youth and as a young adult. He is going to find work as a house painter, which is a fairly respectable trade. I think it's worth noting that when we're talking about being a house painter in the early 19th century, this means working with chemicals like lead and barium and antimony and chromates. And this is at a time with no real understanding of what it means to inhale these fumes and toxins constantly, to have them on your skin, to be working with them. And so there is some evidence and some thought that that exposure to these chemicals and materials may play a role in what is going to happen. Because in his early 30s, his mental health begins taking a rather rapid decline. He had again, seemed like a nice, intelligent young man. He starts showing signs of some disassociative behavior. He starts increasingly acting in a violent way towards family and friends, and he becomes quite erratic. He insists that he wants to move back to England. So he goes to England, comes back. He goes to Philadelphia, comes back, and he's sort of bouncing around. He's kind of losing a connection to the reality of his life, and he starts to believe that the United States government has punished him. They have restricted his travel to England, that they have forbidden him to go. And he claims to his sister that he has read stories in the newspaper about himself and about the government telling him he can't travel. So we're seeing a pretty serious mental health crisis playing out. Eventually, he's going to quit his job and say that the government owes him money 
because he is not Richard Lawrence. He is twist Richard III. So he comes to believe that he is Richard III, which, you know, I think sometimes when we think about the past, it's hard for us to imagine this. But I again, the mental health struggles that we all see today are not new or unique. These things happened in the past as well. It's clear that Richard Lawrence is mentally struggling. That said, he thinks he's Richard III. It also seems to me like I've read a couple accounts of this, and I feel like it's it's dangerous to ascribe one thought process to somebody, like a rational thought process. He variously describes himself as Richard III, also the long lost heir to the British throne. He's having clearly delusions and a mental health crisis that no one really seems to know. There's no understanding of mental health. There's no ability to deal with this. Short of putting him in some kind of asylum and his family doesn't seem to be willing to do that. It's, I think, dangerous to try to ascribe like a straight line to his thought. But basically, the upshot is he thinks he's owed money. Something about the Second Bank of the U.S., he seems to think that because he's the heir, he has property that he should be getting money for. But at any rate, he assigns Jackson, the president, Jackson is to blame for the fact that he's not getting the money he thinks that he should. And that's unfortunate. Jackson's not the best, but clearly he's not doing these things either. And it's certainly not any sort of personal attack against this one Richard no. Lawrence. Yes. But the thought process goes something like, well, if Jackson is holding this up, I need to remove Jackson from the equation. If I can kill Jackson, Martin Van Buren will become president. The vice president will ascend to the presidency. And certainly he will be so grateful to me. He will resolve this financial situation. If you listen to our Garfield episode, there's some similarity here. This sense of if I'm unhappy with the president and I get rid of him, definitely the vice president's going to be thrilled with me. Right. Which is an unfair thing to put on the VP. Whatever his mental state is or whatever, and I agree with you, I think it's difficult to assign one sort of rational school of thought here. It's clear that he is very unwell. And this is documented by family and friends. There are some really drastic changes in his appearance, in the way that he dresses, the way that he acts. And again, as this is playing out, there are increasing threats of violence to himself, to others, and to members of the U.S. government. So this is not happening sort of in secret. It's very clear at the time that there's something not right here. And the fixation on Jackson does continue to grow. There's evidence that he starts sort of tracking the president. Where's the president going to be? What is he doing? What events is he going to? And there are times where he's in his house or in his place of business muttering and talking about Jackson under his breath. So he's clearly kind of fixated whatever this is on Andrew Jackson as the figurehead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, it also reminds me of John Hinckley with Reagan. Like he just fixates on very much so. Jackson is the cause of his problems, similar to the way that Hinckley fixates on Reagan and just no logical progression. And just that's they become increasingly obsessed with the idea that for whatever reason, the president is holding them back from where they want to go. Yes, absolutely. And so this will culminate on a Friday, January 30th, 1835. Andrew Jackson and just about everybody else is at the United States Capitol that day because there was a funeral, the funeral of a representative from South Carolina, a man named Warren Davis, who had been a big Jacksonian, big supporter and booster of Jackson in Congress. Warren Davis is actually buried at Congressional Cemetery. Shout out 
to Congressional Cemetery. We love them. Mm -hmm. And it's worth going and checking out Congressional. There's a lot of interesting people, especially with interesting connections to history. Davis is one of them. So Jackson is going to, as a show of support for Davis's many years of boosting him, going to attend this funeral at the Capitol. Richard Lawrence has decided this is the day. He knows that Jackson's going to this funeral. What better time? He has gone to the U.S. Capitol building with two Derringer pistols looking for Andrew Jackson. Lawrence's original thoughts plan was that he would try to shoot Jackson on his way in. That seemed to him initially maybe the easiest way to get close to Jackson. But you can imagine a lot of people have shown up to the Capitol for this funeral. A lot of people have shown up to gawk at members of Congress and the president. Um, So there's crowds and Lawrence can't get anywhere close to Jackson as Jackson is coming in. During the funeral service, though, inside, crowds outside have dispersed, and Lawrence is going to find a spot near a pillar on the east portico. So if you've been on the Capitol grounds, the east side of the building is the side that faces what is today the Supreme Court and the Library of Congress. So on this sort of eastern side, he sort of gets near a pillar uh, that's not too far from the door. He's pretty confident that Jackson's going to exit from. And so his plan is now to wait for Jackson to exit and take his shot. So that's what happened. Oh, did you want to? And Jackson, I should also mention before we get to what happens, Jackson is at this point, like we mentioned, he's in his late 60s. He's not in the best of health. He has a cane. So he's not moving particularly fast either. That's going to be part of this too. Like Jackson's not, he's a rather slow moving target. In in this point, Derringer also, it always jumps out to me. This is the same type of weapon that John Wilkes Booth will use against Lincoln almost exactly 30 years later. Derringer's, they're single shot. You have to reload. And uh, after every shot, there's no repeating rifles at this point. That's technology is decades ahead of them. And so that's why he's got two of them. Because in case one doesn't fire, he's got, or he misses with one, he's got a second one. And so he's posted up by a pillar waiting for the slow moving president who is instantly identifiable because he's Jackson's a well-known guy. And there aren't that many people in those days, like members of Congress, they, you know, they're, they all look like dudes in suits, but Jackson's pretty identifiable. He's got that shock of white hair. He's the one with the cane. And so he's waiting for him behind this pillar. Yeah. So he's lying in wait. And as Jackson exits, Richard Lawrence is going to step forward and he's going to fire one shot into Jackson's back, but the gun misfires. So Lawrence has a second gun. He's prepared for this. He's going to try again with his second pistol, but it also misfires. Jackson is going to recognize that something's up. (laughs) You know, there seems to be someone behind him trying to fire off a gun twice, two different guns. And Jackson spins around and he does what I think most any sane person would do. He starts beating Lawrence off with his cane. Yeah. Absolutely. And Andrew Jackson is heard to cry, let me alone, let me alone. I know what you're trying to do. So Jackson is, and it should be stated, this is a man who saw battle. This yeah. is a man who loves to duel. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's one of his favorite hobbies. He's got a bullet inside of him from a duel 30 years earlier. This is a man who is familiar with the sound of a firearm. He's familiar with someone's got guns coming at you. He doesn't think twice. I feel like that old soldier instinct just kicks in and he's going to do what it takes. And that rush of adrenaline, he beats Lawrence off, who's 30 years his junior. 
And Jackson's no stranger to violence. The way I say it on tour is he's been in three duels that we know about, and there's rumors of at least three more. Like Becca said, he's got a bullet rattling around inside of him that the doctors can't remove for his health. He's a soldier. He was never really seemingly that far from some sort of violent outburst or verbal violence. He he could uh, cuss with the best of them, it was said. And so he knows what's happening immediately and sort of reacts in a way that seemingly seems trans- So that's, he basically starts to beat Richard Lawrence. Beats him off of him. And people start to notice pretty quickly something's going down. A group of people, including congressmen, uh, one of them is Representative Davy Crockett. (laughs) who we have mentioned on this tour in our Alamo episode. Um, These members of Congress realize what's going on. They wrestle Lawrence to the ground and they turn him over to the police. So this is a pretty quickly thwarted assassination attempt. It does not go well for Lawrence at all. Now, January is when this occurs. The trial happens in April, so not too soon after. And I mean, the evidence is fairly clear. Lawrence's mental state does not improve from January to April. In fact, incarceration likely makes it worse. Um, He's going to be prone to rants and fits throughout the trial. He's not really able to coherently answer questions or or hold up to any sort of line of questioning. There's really no clear rational thought here. They do attempt in the courtroom to take a look at the guns to try to understand what happened with the Derringers. They attempted to recreate the situation of two guns misfiring and they could not. The guns had been properly cleaned, properly loaded. They were fully functioning at the time that Lawrence tried to kill Jackson. An expert at the time said the odds of both guns misfiring were 125,000 to one. Insane to me. Yeah. and I, Yeah. They said something about the damp. It was damp that day. That might have affected. The humidity could have affected it, which was hard to replicate by the time they got to April. But still, the idea that both of these guns would react to the humidity or the dampness in the air in the same way both times when they're both otherwise in perfect working condition, it's sort of baffling during the trial because they really try to look at the weapons and understand what went wrong. And and they 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 can't. can't. And what's interesting is the cap like explodes. There's noise. The noise happens. The smoke happens. But like the powder doesn't ignite to propel the bullet. So the bullet doesn't dislodge. Which is the craziest coincidence that it just, it's amazing. To happen twice. To happen twice. It's to happen in one firearm in this era, it happens. They're not nearly as predictable as weapons are today, as firearms are today. But to have it happen twice is pretty remarkable. And certainly you can imagine uh, there are those that believe it's sort of divine providence to save Andrew Jackson. And there's also, so it should be said, Jackson at first, and he's not the only one, but he believes that this is a conspiracy, that Lawrence is basically acting on Whig orders or even Henry Clay's orders. There's even at some point, he believes that like John C. Calhoun was involved, his vice president wanted to get a a promotion. And Jackson is a little bit paranoid at this point. And so he immediately is going to circulate rumors. There's They start to circulate around Washington that Lawrence is some kind of hired assassin. Calhoun takes to the Senate floor, John C. Calhoun, to protest his innocence. And in fact, it very quickly, as this trial progresses, it becomes very clear very quickly that Richard Lawrence is not mentally well, that this is not, there's no way he could have processed. He's no one's trained assassin. He's no one's 
gun for hire, it is very, very clear that while Jackson has a slew of political enemies, that there are probably plenty of people who wouldn't have minded if one of those guns had actually fired and put Jackson at least into uh, illness, if not death, that Lawrence has nothing to do with any of those people. And so there is in that kind of interim, January to April, a lot of rife time to let conspiracy and accusation run wild. And you can imagine, we've talked about this in previous episodes, but newspapers of this era are highly partisan. So the way in which this news and the story is being disseminated really depends on if you're a Whig paper, if you're a Democratic paper, are you a Jacksonian, are you not? And then once this trial happens, everybody has to sort of eat their hat a little bit and go, okay, this man is not well. And in fact, the jury needs not even five minutes to find Lawrence not guilty by reason of insanity. It is very clearly on display that this man is not well. He is not in his right mind. Whatever actions he took on January 30th were not the actions of a a rational man, a man who understood what was really going on. And because Jackson is harmed in no way, right? There's no manslaughter here. There's There's no victim. Jackson manages to defend himself. And so the jury does not feel it necessary to really extract a heavy punishment from Lawrence. I think they're rather sympathetic given the era, honestly. He's put into hospitals um, and he will bounce around the next 20 years, various hospitals, institutions. This basically forces his family to do what they seem to be hesitant to do previous to this, which is put him away. And then in 1855, a campus in Washington, D.C. opens called St. Elizabeth's, and it's the first sort of real mental institution, proper facility to try to deal with the mentally ill in our nation's capital. And Lawrence is transferred there. He's actually in the first wave of people to be admitted to St. Elizabeth's, and he'll live the last six years of his life there. So he is going to remain in the D.C. area, but he remains in the care of others. And There's not a lot of information about what that time is like for him, but he does not commit any other crimes. He does not transition into a jail situation. So there's something to be said, perhaps, for him doing better in this institutionalized setting. Interestingly, Lawrence is buried today in D.C. in Rock Creek Cemetery. So another shout out to, I think, a really interesting place in D.C. that people don't always explore. Rock Creek Cemetery has a vast array of interesting people who are laid to rest there from very, very colorful, famous political figures to people like Lawrence who are of note for very, very different reasons. Now, um, you would think perhaps that something like this might trigger pun intended, mm-hmm. some discussions about presidential security. Uh, no. It does not. <laughs> I find this to be one of the most remarkable aspects of this whole thing. This is so crazy to me, particularly from a modern standpoint where we spend so much time, money, and effort protecting the president, protecting the vice president, protecting members of Congress. It's a whole apparatus. There's an entire, like, system of things that checklist of things the secret service does to keep the president vice president and their family members safe and for my opinion it is my money it is taxpayer money well spent the idea of protecting the president i think is an easy one uh regardless of party so for us today it's so wild particularly living in dc and seeing firsthand the security on a regular basis this does not trigger any discussion about security, about a bodyguard, about, I don't know, a fence or something, anything. There's no 
thought of like, hey, president seems like an important guy. People keep wanting to try to kill him. I don't know. Yeah, you know, if someone's mentally ill, they may actually try to kill that guy. It just doesn't click. And if you've listened to our other assassination episodes, this isn't surprising because Lincoln gets assassinated. It doesn't mark a sea change in presidential nope. security, Garfield, et cetera. We have to kind of learn this lesson many times over through the 19th century before kind of cooler heads prevail. But it's, I think, you know, an important note that this political violence occurs at every point in our history and how we react to it is very, very telling, right? Do we change, adapt? Do we address it for what it is? And in 1835, people write it off. They write it off because Jackson's Jackson's a fiery figure. He's, you know, he riles people up and he's got political enemies. And how do you, you can't stop someone who's mentally ill, right? What are you going to do? Right. There's kind of this sense of it, it is just par and parcel for the, the role. And I think that's a bit of a cop out, but that's how people right. react to it. And uh, so I think that's very telling. And even Jackson himself doesn't seem to internalize this and think about the need to like, I don't know, ramp down the rhetoric. One of the last things that Jackson is asked two years later when he's done being president, he's retiring from public life. He is asked if he has any regrets. And he says, yes, I regret that I was unable to shoot Henry Clay or hang John C. Calhoun. That's his like epitaph <laughs> for his political career. So it does not seem to have been... It even occurred to Jackson that maybe there should be like a, a tamping down of the violent rhetoric around the political sphere. Yeah, to consider how how we're yeah. talking about our political yeah. enemies. Well, you would think this would be the end, nope. but no, we have something twist. else we want to share. <laughs> There's a little twist. If we can do anything on this podcast, we can bring something around to Abraham Lincoln. Because as you know, just about 20 or 30 years after this event, Abraham Lincoln will be assassinated by John Wilkes Booth. If you want to know more, as Rebecca mentioned, we have a wonderful tour uh, that goes in depth in that event. But John Wilkes Booth had a father by the name of Junius Booth. Junius is a very famous man, much like his son will become for slightly different reasons. Junius is a very, very well-known actor. He's he's a big deal, a huge deal, actually. Huge deal. Really, and many people consider him kind of the first great American actor. He travels all around the country. He performs frequently. He's kind of at this point of where celebrity is starting to build because of newspapers and broadsheets and kind of the ability to travel a little bit more easily as we start moving slightly into the rail era. Um, so he is a very, very well-known figure. But he is also a man with a uh, complicated disposition. Oh, man. Junius Booth, man. In some ways, John Wilkes Booth doesn't really have a shot. Like, Junius, first of all, he's not American, actually. He runs out on his wife and kid in England, and he comes with his mistress. And they have a whole slew of kids, including... John Wilkes Booth eventually. And Junius is an actor here and he's a very famous one. He's, he takes the middle name of Brutus, Junius Brutus Booth, which is epic. And he's also a big drunk, <laughs> like a big drunk. And yeah. it seems like not the greatest dad. John Wilkes Booth is not alive at this time, so he's not born yet, but he has other kids. And Junius, as particularly as he ages and sort of gets more and more into alcohol, he's not a candidate for father of the year. Let's let's start with that. 
he's not around a lot. We have to remember to be an actor in this era is a lot of travel. He's off. Um, he doesn't have, I think, any real morals when it comes to women or gambling or yeah. drinking. He brings money in and spends it as quickly as it does. So there's a very, I think, like kind of thread of instability in the home life of the Booth family. Yeah. And yeah, all of that drinking, along with the fact that he's got, like his son will have, a temper. Yeah. This is a man who has a huge ego who takes umbrage at the smallest of slights. This is a man who is known for getting into bar fights. He's known for getting into sort of having these violent outbursts. And the more he drinks, the meaner he gets, which is often the case in these situations. And Booth, Junius Booth, is by 1835, I mean, the best known actor in the United States. He has hobnobbed with quite a number of well-known people, including Andrew Jackson. He and Jackson know each other, not very well. Well, but they have met, they know each other. Uh, he knows a lot of members of Congress and politicians. And on July 4th, 1835, Junius Booth writes a letter to President Andrew Jackson. Now, this is about six months after this assassination attempt. Junius Booth, shockingly, is quite intoxicated, and he's very angry at President Jackson, because Jackson has, Jackson's government, I should say, Jackson didn't personally arrest two men who are accused of being privates. They call themselves privateers, but they're pirates. These two men have been arrested and they're being sentenced to death. And Junius Booth is so angry at Andrew Jackson that in his drunkenness, he fires off a letter on July 4th and he writes, quote, you damned old scoundrel. I will cut your throat whilst you are sleeping, end quote. He later says, I promise to have you burnt at the stake. And then more than once in the letter, he says, you know me, you know it to be true. So not only does he write this letter, he manages to get it nailed off <laughs> to the White House. And again, there's no secret service. There's no security. Nothing has changed after Jackson's assassination mm -hmm. attempt. So there's nobody reviewing the mail for threats of violence. Today, and please take this as advice from us to you. Don't write a letter like this and send it to the White House. It's not going to end well for you. Don't do it. Don't tweet it. Don't put it out on your Instagram. Keep these are inside thoughts. <laughs> these are not. No, it is not. They're not outside thoughts in 2024. So to be clear, today somebody is reviewing what you say and write to the president. But in 1835, he sends this letter off. Now, the part of the story I love is, one, we really don't know how Jackson reacted to this letter. I like to imagine he got a lot of letters like this and he was just like, Oh, you hate me. I imagine he did too. I mean, honestly, I imagine almost all presidents get some kind of letters like this. There are always people who don't like you. Like if you take a position, somebody's not going to like it. That's kind of the nature of being in public life, I feel like. But Jackson seems to have had a special gift for arousing anger in not only historians, <laughs> but also his contemporaries. Um, so we don't know how Jackson reacted. Again, I think because of his background as a soldier, as a man who grew up on the frontier, as a guy who's a little rough around the edges and, 
you know, knew plenty of heavy drinker in his day was probably like, ah, another drunken, I want to kill you letter. <laughs> I get the feeling he would have really brushed it off. I mean, but the story of this letter perpetuated for years and for years, people thought it was fake. Nobody thought it was real, right? Like, what are the odds that the man who killed Abraham Lincoln, John Wilkes Booth, that his own father had also threatened to kill another American president? It seems ludicrous, right? It seems too pert, too tidy. And yet in 2009, I hope many of you like myself are fans of public broadcast uh, television. PBS has a series called History Detectives, and they decided to look at this letter and they were able to, with the help of our friends over at the Library of Congress and a few other conservators, they were able to authenticate this letter officially in 2009. It was indeed written and mailed by Junius Booth. We again have no real evidence of whether Jackson personally read it, whether it was kind of went through his staff, but we know it, it arrived at the White House and it exists. Uh, we'll put in the show notes, there's some wonderful resources, including a digital scan of the letter. But it seemed too, it seemed too right, too nice of a coincidence. People couldn't believe that in one family, two people had threatened presidents with death. And yet here we are. And yet here we are. <laughs> I love that. I love that this is why history is the best because with the increasing technology and resources that we have now, we can do really cool, interesting investigations like this and authenticate stuff that was kind of iffy uh, and in the background and on the margins. And who knows what we'll be able to detect with more technology in another 10, 20, 100 years. We're always learning new things and facts are always kind of falling into place, which I think is great. Also, not at all surprising that the hot temper was generational in the booth. Yeah, family. not at all. Um, Doesn't surprise me. Like father, like son, when it comes to Junius and John yep. Wilkes Booth, they unfortunately share quite a lot in mind and temperament and yeah, the hot headedness, the running off the mouth, the acting without thinking of consequences. Junius is sort of fortunate of the time period and the situation. Again, this is not something I would advise anybody to do today. And certainly, you know, it's lucky that it's a drunken thought and not an action that he takes. But yes, if you want to understand a little bit of John Wilkes Booth's psychology, I think knowing just even a little bit about his father sheds a lot of light on why John Wilkes Booth is the way he is. Yeah, just not the most stable environment for, you know, mental health. And the genetic line is not great. Not great, no. No, yep, I agree. And, you know, Jackson, I wonder if Jackson read it. That's the sort of unanswered question I have, is that whether Jackson, like, read the letter and was like, oh, I know plenty of drunks that don't like me. What are you going to do? I can just see him saying that. <laughs> or was it another... Like, here's another letter from Junius Booth where he's <laughs> mad about something I did, whatever. <laughs> or I have to imagine, if not Jackson, some beleaguered aide that's just like, oh, another one of these. And it just goes into the, right. the fire, right? Like, well, no, because we have the letter. It just goes into right. the filing box. Another unsatisfied taxpayer. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Which shout out to everybody who has to review presidential correspondence. You must see all kinds of things. Oh my goodness. Yeah. If you ever want to come on the pod and talk tough, well, come on. <laughs> we would love, we would love to know. Uh, yeah. So Andrew Jackson, you're never going to change my mind about him writ large. Like I'm never going to be like, oh, maybe let me reconsider my feelings on Jackson. However, 
I do think it's worth noting that I don't believe that any president should have to be on the receiving end of this kind of violent act. And it's quite fortunate that he survives and that Lawrence is clearly unwell and kind of against all odds, ends up getting help uh, or as best help as you could provide in the early 19th century, as opposed to simply being turned over to jail or or executed. So it's a sad and unfortunate situation, but one that perhaps gives another little little sliver of complexity to Andrew Jackson and his time as president of the United States. Yeah, absolutely. There's lots of other assassination attempts, though, to talk about. So we'll definitely have to consider a few others for future episodes because there are a few others who have skirted away alive oh, yeah. uh, and, and shaken but alive after such events. But we want to thank you, as always, listeners, for being with us on this ride. Thank you for being incredible supporters of the podcast. Big shout out to our patrons who literally keep the lights on and and make this happen. We really, really appreciate you. If you have ideas, questions, want to know more, want to come on a tour, reach out to us. You can find us on social, Tour Guide Tell All or Tour Guide Tell. You can email us at tourguidetellall at gmail.com. And of course, you can check out our tour schedule at dcbyfoot.com. So we, we appreciate you. We love you. One month down, we still got the rest of 2024 to go. We are excited for the stories that we're going to be telling this year. So thank you for coming along with us. Thanks, everybody. And we'll be back next month. We'll see you next month. Bye. Bye.